Hey y'all, this is May, and I want to welcome you to Crimes of a Decade, a Texas true crime podcast. This season, I'll be discussing murders from the year 1990 through 1999. Today's story is of a male murderer from 1990. So grab you some Whataburger and open that Dr. Pepper. Let's go back in time to Texas true crime. In 1990, NASA's STS-31 mission deployed the Hubble Space Telescope. The Hubble Telescope was the first space telescope put into orbit that could be repaired by astronauts when maintenance was needed. That same year, the popular songs We Didn't Start the Fire by Billy Joel, Ice Ice Baby by Vanilla Ice, and Vogue by Madonna topped the Billboard charts. Another thing that happened in 1990 was a spoiled son who became upset when he was financially cut off. Please join me in walking down Erie Lane. Jean and Helen Summers were both 64 years old when they were murdered in their home along with Jean's mentally disabled brother, 60-year-old Billy Mack. Jean was born in Abilene, and he became a self-employed general contractor. He was a U.S. Army veteran of World War II, receiving the Purple Heart. He was a member of Disabled American Veterans, American Legion, and Veterans of Foreign Wars. Helen was born in Comanche, where she grew up and graduated from high school. She moved from Comanche to Abilene in 1941, and she was a homemaker. The couple brought Billy Mag in to care for after his and Jean's mother passed away. Jean and Helen had one son together, Gregory Summers. But if it weren't for their adoptive son, they would have still been alive. Greg Summers was adopted by Jean and Helen Summers when he was three days old. There is not much known about Greg's upbringing, but as an adult, it was noted that Greg and his father had a difficult relationship, which included Greg threatening to kill his dad and burn the house down with him in it. His parents also seemed to always bail Greg out of his many financial troubles. And on top of all of that, Greg had two ex-wives that he had a history of violence against that included kicking his first wife in the stomach when she was pregnant, and beating his second wife, holding a gun to her head and forcing her to beg for her life on her knees. He even beat his sons. But Jean finally had enough of his son's antics and informed his 32-year-old son he would not be helping him out of his financial problems anymore. Greg was furious and started planning how he could get some quick cash. Deciding that killing his parents for the insurance money was the best idea. He 
Kenan Wilcox, an acquaintance of Greg Summers, was the first person he approached in his search to hire someone to murder his parents and uncle and to burn down their house. Summers offered to pay Wilcox a portion of the insurance money he would receive after his parents' death and that he could also case the house and take whatever he could find. Wilcox turned him down. Greg then approached 23-year-old Andrew Cantu, who had just gotten out of prison for burglary after serving only seven weeks of his five-year sentence. Unlike Wilcox, he agreed to the murder-for-hire plot. These are the events recorded of what happened after this agreement. Andrew Cantu told his friend Max Aguirre that he had a job to do, kill three old people, and asked for Max to help him pull off the job. But Max declined to help in any way, using the excuse that he was on probation to get out of it. Later that same night, Cantu borrowed his brother's black sweatpants and sweatshirt, then paced in and out of the house as if waiting for someone. But no one arrived until early on June 11, 1990, when Greg Summers drove up to the house. Greg came by, picked up Cantu, and the two went riding in Summers' truck, and approached Max and asked him to contact his cousin, Raymond Gonzalez. Max was unable to contact him, but when Gonzalez heard that Max was trying to reach him, he got worried that Max was having gang troubles and traveled to Abilene from Haskell with a friend. Paul Flores. By the time Gonzalez showed up, Summers was no longer with Cantu. Gonzalez had only briefly met Cantu in the past, and this was Flores' first time meeting him. But even so, once Cantu got Max, Gonzalez, and Flores in the car with him, he asked if they would waste three old people whose adopted son wanted them killed. Cantu added that they would be paid with money jewelry, and guns in the house, and from insurance policies collected later. When the others refused to help, Cantu changed the subject to burglary of a house. Gonzalez and Flores agreed to join in on the burglary. But again, Max declined, saying he was on probation. Gonzalez dropped Cantu off at his house, then took Max home. Max tried to get the other two guys to not go along with Cantu's plan and he believed he got through to them, and that they were headed home after they left his house. But Gonzalez and Flores didn't return home. They went and picked up Cantu, who had again borrowed his brother's black sweatpants and shirt, telling his brother that he was going to pull a heist. The three then went to a grocery store where Cantu purchased lighter fluid, gloves, pantyhose, and a cap. Cantu had also bought a knife off of Flores. They then rode around before setting out for the house they intended to burglarize. Sometime near midnight, they drove through an alley behind the Summers' residence. Cantu was dropped off in the alley behind the house to cut the telephone line. Gonzalez picked up Cantu, drove to a nearby street, and parked. The three got out and walked toward the alley behind the Summers' home. Cantu was carrying the knife and lighter fluid. The three men entered the Summers' yard through a back gate. Cantu cut a hole in a back window screen and crawled into the house. 
By the time Gonzalez and Flores crawled inside, Cantu was already stabbing Gene Summers. He was lying in his bed. Cantu turned to Gonzalez and Flores and threatened to waste them if they attempted to leave, and then proceeded to the living room where he repeatedly stabbed Helen Summers as she sat sleeping in a recliner. Cantu ordered Flores and Gonzalez to search the house for the promised money before he proceeded to a front bedroom where he murdered Billy Mac Summers. After stabbing all three of the elderly Summers, Cantu learned from the other two that no money had been found in the home. Angry, Cantu ransacked the house looking for the money himself, but found nothing of which he was promised. Before leaving, Cantu doused the bedroom with lighter fluid and set it on fire. As the three men drove from the scene, ambulance and fire truck sirens could be heard heading in the direction of the summer's home. When Cantu ordered Flores to get rid of the knife, Flores threw it out the car window. This further infuriated Cantu, but they kept driving. That bloody knife was eventually found by a woman mowing her lawn. The three raced to the home of Cantu's uncle, where Cantu yelled at Gonzalez and Flores for their failure to find the promised money and searched them for it, accusing them of theft. Cantu threatened to kill Flores and Gonzalez if they had the money or talked about the incident. After this, Flores and Gonzalez returned to Haskell. The following morning, June 12, 1990, in a highly uncharacteristic manner, Cantu asked his brother if he had seen the news. Alerted by the strangeness of the question, his brother watched the midday news and learned about the triple murders. Knowing Cantu and that the victims were Greg Summers' parents, he asked whether he had been involved in the murders, but Cantu denied any involvement. Later that week, his brother asked him again if he had any part in the murders. And disgusted by the answer, he called the police and made a statement on June 19, 1990. Max also asked Cantu about the murders. Cantu confessed that he had committed them and complained about not having been paid. And on June 15, 1990, Keenan Wilcox also contacted the police after seeing the news and informed them he was an acquaintance of Summers and that Summers had approached him attempting to hire him to murder his parents and uncle, and to burn down their house. The tip to police from Cantu's brother led to the arrest of Cantu, Gonzalez, and Flores. And Summers became a suspect after relatives told authorities about his money troubles. The two men who accompanied Cantu the night of the slains testified against him as part of a plea bargain. They told how Cantu slipped through a back window, stabbed Gene Summers nine times in the chest, his wife eight times, and Billy Mac Summers seven times, then set the house on fire. Cantu denied any involvement and blamed his companions, but they testified that Cantu had identified Greg Summers as the instigator. A deputy sheriff testified that Cantu had been assaultive and disruptive on several occasions while he was pending trial on the capital murder charge. 
while yet another officer testified that Cantu had a reputation for being violent and dangerous. Max Aguirre testified that he had known Cantu about one and a half or two years, and that Cantu often made his living selling crank. Max had also seen Cantu's propensity for violence. Examples such as Cantu had offered Max $50 to shoot a man. Cantu carried a gun when necessary. That he saw Cantu carrying Uzi to a fight. Cantu bragged that he shot up a car with three people inside and laughed at how he had them kissing the floorboard. And on one occasion, Cantu gave Max a gun and told him to shoot a man he did not know or trust if anything went down. James Rogers testified that he was present when Cantu made a purchase of cocaine at a party in Dallas. While en route to another location, Cantu pulled a shotgun and laid it on his lap and said if they were stopped by the cops, he was going to kill them. Later, Cantu became angry with Rogers and told him if he ever saw him in Abilene, he would probably blow his head off. Cantu even testified during the punishment phase against the advice of his attorneys. Cantu claimed that he was not guilty and gave an alibi story for his whereabouts on the night of the murders, claiming that he had gone to Fort Worth to buy drugs. Cantu also claimed his confessions to the 1988 burglaries were not voluntarily made. He had other persons hitting houses for him, but that he never entered any of the houses himself and claimed he was wrongfully charged in Fort Worth with attempted murder. Cantu also blamed the killings on Gonzalez and Flores, insisting he was buying cocaine in Fort Worth, 150 miles to the east, at the time of the slayings. Andrew Cantu was convicted of capital murder and was executed in 1999. While in custody, Summers befriended another inmate who assisted Summers with legal work and prepared documents for Summers. But when the inmate realized that Summers was using documents prepared by him as false evidence, he contacted prison officials and told them of his encounter with Summers. And during their interactions, Summers told the inmate of his part in the murders. This inmate testified to that at Greg Summers' trial. Prosecutors also showed how Summers previously collected insurance payoffs from fires at his grandmother's house and a vehicle. And Summers' two ex-wives testified about his violence towards them and his four children and how they feared him. A jury convicted Summers of capital murder in August 1991 and sentenced him to death. After the trial, one of the prosecutors stated, there was not one crucial piece of evidence. It was the totality of the evidence. It was the overwhelming amount of evidence. Summers said from death row that he loved his parents, but described other relatives as estranged. But also on death row, he started to correspond with a woman named Maria Carmela Carreta, a teacher from Italy. Carita said she began writing to Summers about 10 years earlier, in 1996, after reading an article about him in a Catholic news magazine. She decided to send a contribution for his defense, 
and he sent back a thank you note. In 1998, she got students from a local middle school involved. And in October 2005, they collected signatures for a moratorium against the death penalty and gave them to Texas State Senate Letitia Van de Pute, a Democrat from San Antonio, when she had visited Florence. Italy, it turns out, is a firm opponent of capital punishment, which is banned throughout the European Union. Since 1999, the lights illuminating Rome's ancient Colosseum have turned from white to gold every time a death sentence is commuted around the world, or when a country abolishes capital punishment. Greg Summers was executed on October 25th 2006. Maria Carmela Carreta stated that Summers had been corresponding with students from a local middle school for several years from prison, and that he let it be known that he wanted to be buried in a white coffin with the school's children's signatures. He wanted it to be white as a symbol of innocence. Tuscany's official in charge of international corporation, Massimo Tassici, said the region and the municipality of Caschina, 11 miles east of Pisa, both had agreed to have Summers buried there at their expense, but that it was dependent on getting consent from the family. Member Susanna Charinza, from a group by the name of Spring for Summers, said the necessary documents had been forwarded to the Italian consulate in Houston, which was in the process of translating them. As of that Thursday, Summer's body was still at the funeral home in Huntsville and had not been claimed. Michelle Lyons, from the Texas Department of Criminal Justice, said if it was not claimed in a reasonable time period, they would bury Summer's body at the prison cemetery. I had messaged Maria to discuss this case and her relationship with Greg Summers, but I did not get a response back. From what I gather, Summers did not get his remains sent to Italy, and he is buried in the prison cemetery in Texas. I want to say a huge thank you to newspapers.com, Murderpedia, and all the other great resources that helped me get all the information for this episode. I'll put a link to their work in the show notes. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Crimes of a Decade, a Texas true crime podcast. Next episode, I'll be detailing a female murderer from the year 1991. If you're enjoying this podcast, don't forget to subscribe. And also, I have a Patreon, and that is where you would be able to hear an episode from me every week. I would also love for you to rate and review my podcast on iTunes as it really does help out. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email me at crimesofadecade at gmail.com.